Whether you're a donor, a doer, or a dedicated to learning more about research for moms, babies, and their families, from March of Dimes, it's Modcast, where you'll learn new ideas, find ways to get involved, or just be amazed. Move this one to the top of your playlist each and every month, and join the conversation with the best and brightest in the field. Listen to Modcast, March of Dimes Research Podcast, today. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Hi on YouTube. I'm waving to a camera. That's probably pretty cheesy, but whatever. Good to be with you, whether you're listening to my voice or you're seeing me talk. Um, on this episode, man, this is a special one. David Gushy is a legend, friends. Um, I've interviewed him before. He is a just a powerhouse of wisdom and knowledge when it comes to Christian ethics. How do we navigate our current cultural moment? He wrote a new book. Okay. It's called, it's right here. If you can see this, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Yeah. Provocative title. Well worth the read. Please buy this book, pick it up. There's no, I get no cup, uh, kickback from anyone buying books via our recommendation, just to be clear, but it's well worth checking out. It's so helpful to understand that um, we have a problem. We have a problem. And also, how do we move forward? How do we maintain democracy? Why is it important to maintain democracy? Why is this rise of authoritarianism happening? Where is it coming from? This conversation covers all that and also what's having, happening globally with things that you might not be aware of. And I think it's so important that you are. So I hope you enjoy this interview. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you like this show, please share it. Share the episode on YouTube or on your podcast with your buddies. I don't know, but share it. Let people know that, hey, if you're a Christian, if you're trying to think about this stuff differently, you're not alone. There are people out there thinking about this stuff in hopefully better ways than how we were taught to to understand them or to believe them. So please share the podcast. And of course, if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they navigate a better path forward in their Christian tradition. We do this because of the donations, because we're a nonprofit, of people like you. We have no paywalls. 
no Patreon, no nothing, no buy me a coffee, no nothing. It is all the generosity of someone like you makes this work possible so someone else can hear the episode and know, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. So you can donate via the link in our bio and all donations are, of course, tax deductible. Friends, enjoy this interview. We'd love your feedback. Talk to you all later on. Before we get to the interview, I need to remind you that we are headed to Theology Beer Camp October 18th in Springfield, Missouri. And friends, let me tell you, this event is stacked. We have amazing theologians like Pete Enns, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Grace Junesome Kim, and Thomas J. Ord, many of which have been on the podcast, by the way. We have amazing podcasts showing up, like You Have Permission with Dan Koch, The God Who Riots with Damon Garcia, A Tiny Revolution with Kevin Garcia, and of course, yours truly. And this year, the music lineup is out of control. See Derek Webb, Flamey Grant, Trey Pearson, and more perform live. Over two dozen TNE folks have already bought their tickets, and now is the time to get yours. Use promo code TNEGODPOD for $25 off your ticket and come ready to explore better ways forward in your faith, meet amazing people, and if you like beer, well, your ticket includes an unlimited amount from several local breweries. This is going to be an amazing time, so get your ticket via the link in the show notes and use promo code TNEGODPOD for $25 off your ticket. I will see you in October. All right. I am very excited for this conversation. Dr. David Gushy is on the podcast again. This is my third time as an individual interviewing you, my second time as the host of this podcast. So, David, it's good to have you back on the show again. Thanks for making time. Tim, it's good to be with you. I always love talking to you. Likewise. Truly likewise. So I'm actually, I'm excited. I'm nervous. I don't know where this conversation is going to go because you have a new book that actually probably by this time, when, when people are hearing this, it should be out by now, called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Quite a provocative title. Um, I wonder why you would write, would, write, would write a book like this at this moment in history. Um, before we dive into it, can you just give people, maybe some new listeners, just a very brief summary of who you are, your background, you know, and in, in, in what you do. Sure. Um, I teach Christian ethics. I'm based here in Atlanta. I'm in my Atlanta office today. Um, I have an appointment also at uh, the Free University of Amsterdam, so I go back and forth some. Um, I've been doing this work for 30 years, so that means I'm 37 years old at this point because <laughs> I started young. Um, I went to Union Seminary in New York, uh, but my uh, religious background is Southern Baptist and Evangelical, so there's an interesting mix there. Um, I would say this is the most politically focused of all of my books, but I mean, I've been in this zip code before, but never quite uh, exactly where this book ends up. Yeah. But a Christian ethicist, especially a Christian social ethicist, lives to fulfill the calling of helping Christians be faithful to Jesus in all aspects of life, but especially public and social life. Yeah. So uh, the political arena and how Christians engage politics has always been a part of that agenda. And I think right now it's urgent. And so uh, that kind of maybe gives you what, 
what you're looking for in terms of some backstory there. That's great. Yeah, I mean, some of the books that you've written, Changing Our Minds, uh, which is very impactful for a lot of people who I know are listening to this, the book After Evangelicalism, I've had you on that for that before, Kingdom Ethics, um, you rewrote that, I think, I'm sorry, Introducing Christian Ethics, you wrote that in 2022. You've written the book, uh, Kingdom Ethics, which a lot of colleges still use, et cetera. Yeah. So, so certainly you've been around the block, so to speak. You've been in this world for a bit. You've seen a lot of shifts, a lot of change. And I think that's important because if someone like you is writing a book like this, defending democracy from its Christian enemies, you're not a reactionary person. You know, you've been here for a while. I, I don't, I don't, the way I've understood you to be as far as we've interacted is someone who's measured and maybe more strategic and not looking to get into just random wars about things that maybe might pass over in a month or two. So when you write a book about defending democracy from its Christian enemies, even that title for me coming from you is alarming. I mean, if I tweeted that in the, to the ether, most would be like, yeah, whatever, Tim, like, okay, you know, you're just, you're in, you're ranting. But if you write this book, it's like, I got to read this book and, and check it out. Let's kind of start here. I mean, this is a very big conversation and something that we obviously I'm passionate about tracking this term Christian nationalism, what that means, how it manifests. Why don't you give us, what was your why behind this book? I mean, what were you seeing that made you title a book this, that is is focused on this? What What's the why behind that? Um, a place to start is January 6th, 2021 at the Capitol building in Washington. Yeah. With uh, Christian flags, Trump flags, U.S. flags, Confederate flags, uh, and unholy combinations thereof uh, heavily represented in that space. Um, but that was just the culmination of what I consider to be an alarming deterioration of democratic and rule of law commitments in the U.S. in the Trump era and with with conservative Christians being right in the middle of that. Mm. Um, so uh, here's the way I've sometimes said it. I mean, I got my training in Christian ethics 35 years ago and my teachers were all committed to Christian participation in democracy. Mm. Um, so we, we learned about um, uh, the long history of Christian political thought and why democracy with the rule of law and constitutional government and so on was an improvement over every previous political system like monarchy and stuff. Um, and my teachers also said that a lot of what Christian ethicists do is to help Christians think about how to participate in the democratic process. So like I've, I've written on issues like uh, climate change and made proposals as to what the laws should be in relation to fossil fuels. Right. Or um, when the U.S. started torturing people after 9-11 um, in a moment of panic, I helped to draft a response saying what those laws ought to be, right? But all of that assumes a certain stability hmm. in the democratic process itself. You have a constitution that people respect. Uh, in our country, you have three branches of government. You have, uh, you have a respect for um, how things are supposed to work. If the courts strike something down, then it's struck down. If laws are in place, then you don't break those laws. You're working within the democratic process that, I mean, the U.S. has 
this constitutional order that has existed since the 1780s, you know? Yeah. And the idea was that it was stable. And we wanted it to be the best version of itself that it could be. But now, since the emergence of Trump, especially, there's a sense that 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 democratic process is at risk itself, that democratic government is at risk. I mean, what Trump has been indicted for now in four different locations as we speak right. is efforts to, well, three of them, were efforts to subvert the democratic process, the process of elections. Yeah. Um, and so that's like a four alarm fire. Hmm. Um, that's why, and the fact that many Christians prior to January 6th and during the Trump years and even now have been seduced into anti-democratic ways of thinking. Yeah. Um, that Christians are part of the enemies of the democratic order. That's why I wrote this book. This title jumped out at me. Um, like I knew this is what the title of this book needed to be as soon as I started working on it. Mm. Um, in the end, the book doesn't just discuss the U.S. It discusses six other countries in which same the same kinds of or similar dynamics have taken place so, and in which Christians have been up to their eyeballs in the problem. So that, I think, is one of the unique contributions of the book is that it's it's got a bit of a global perspective, not just the U.S. Yeah, you know, that is really helpful, especially um, when uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. I started looking into just some stuff like what what's going on there. And I saw a lot of connection to uh, the church, uh, the, the Russian Orthodox Church and a lot of like networks there. And I was talking to Diana Butler Bass about some of this stuff. And then I, I listened to a pretty deep dive from NPR, I think it was, on uh, on Victor Orban over in Hungary. Right. And just like, whoa, I was not aware that 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 Victor Orban was this person. Then I saw him speaking at CPAC, the conservative political action, I think, summit or committee in Texas. Yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, like there is an authoritarian shift, maybe more than ever that I'm aware of as I'm being exposed to this. Uh, in like this more conservative right wing space, which I do think obviously is concerning. Now, in the book, you don't really use the term Christian nationalism. You have a different label that 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 you use. Can you first tell people what that label is and why you chose that over something like Christian nationalists? Yeah, um, I mean, I discuss uh, different, you might say, analytical categories for what's going on. Yeah. Um, some people say the problem is populism. Some people say the problem is fascism. Um, some people say the problem is white supremacy. Um, some people say the problem is ethno-nationalism. Um, but in the battle of sound bites and of uh, analytical labeling, Christian nationalism became the term that everybody started using. Right. Um, as I kind of got under the hood and looked at, um, what different people meant by that, um, and I talk, I do talk about that early in the book, I felt that it didn't fully capture what I was seeing. It was a little bit confusing and it didn't fully cover other countries. Hmm. So as I thought about what exactly is this, um, I decided on three main pieces. Um, my main label is authoritarian reactionary Christianity. And so authoritarian, 
uh, there's a lot of discussion of authoritarianism in politics and religion. It's essentially centralized power with few checks or balances in the hands of a strong man, usually whether religious or moral or political, who dominates the public order and dictates what the mm. rules will be. Mm. Um, so authoritarianism is, I have an anti-authoritarianism in my, in my bones for a lot of reasons. I, I think that authoritarianism is a problem. It's not a good way to govern uh, any community, including a country. And it's yeah. not what we have in the U.S. Constitution. Um, and then reactionary is a pivotal phrase for me. The story that I'm telling, and I'm only the only reason I'm telling it is because I hear it from the people that I'm analyzing, is fierce negative reaction to modern cultural changes mm, on the yes. part of conservative Christians of all types. Yeah, it's well said. This is not just evangelicals. It's also um, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Sometimes it's Jews and Muslims too, um, but my book is about Christians. Yeah. Um, you don't even have to be especially religious to be fiercely negative and reactionary towards modern cultural changes like um, religious pluralism, uh, multiracial, you know, multiracial society, yep. the decline of white people's dominance in public life, um, the rise of uh, acceptance of sexual diversity and so on. So, um, so what I think we have is, it goes something like this, fiercely negative, even enraged or horrified conservative religious reaction to such changes. Um, and in the US, the way that the organizing was done in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and so on was, we must resist these changes using the democratic process. Right. That's moral majority. That's Jerry Falwell. That's Pat Robertson. It's people like that. So just to pause there. You mean like yeah. vote for these people, vote for for people who have passed these laws, vote for the folks who are going to represent you in Congress, in the Senate, in, in the office. That's the idea you're talking That's about? Right. That's why you got to elect Ronald Reagan and you got to elect George W. Bush and they're going to appoint the right Supreme Court judges and that right. kind of thing. Right. Right. But all of that assumed confidence in the democratic process itself. Right. right. And I think that by the time Trump came along, he was already rumbling with a kind of a boundary-breaking spirit from 2015 forward. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons he attracted some of the most fiercely reactionary Christians was he was able to channel this idea. The democratic process is not working for us. Yeah. Um, even when we win elections, it seems that we don't get what we want. Abortion is never overturned. <laughs> of course, then it finally was, right? Right. Um, uh, you know, um, homosexuality continues to advance. Um, white people continue to lose power. Yeah. Um, Christianity continues to fade in cultural influence. And for a number of reasons, a kind of a lawless, boundary-breaking kind of spirit developed. It's like, oh, well, if the democratic process is not working for us, maybe we are not so committed to the democratic process itself. Hmm. 
maybe we're going to have to break a few eggs here. We're going to have to break a few rules, fiddle with some elections, um, send some intimidating people up to Capitol Hill. Um, in other words, maybe maybe we can't trust democracy anymore. We need to go around it. Right. And I show in the book that going around democracy or subverting it or manipulating it or undercutting it is what authoritarians do. Mm. And they've done it in multiple countries. I think we became, we came very close. A, a few people in a few states, one of them being Mike Pence on January 6th. Definitely. A few people prevented a major constitutional crisis. Yeah. Um, with a lot of blood in the streets. Yeah. Um, we came really close. The guardrails held, but kind of just barely. Yeah. And so I think it's time to analyze what those guardrails are and why they matter and why Christians should not be seduced by, even if you're, even if say for argument, let's say you're a person who thinks every social change since the 1960s has been bad. Yeah. And there may be some people listening who, who, who believe that. That democracy is still worth holding on to, even though democracy is not yielding the results that you necessarily want. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the more I've been um, doing my own understanding and trying to, you know, kind of get up to speed on the current cultural moment on a deeper level than just what we see in the news. Um, I think that your assessment is pretty spot on. And I think January 6th was that moment where it's like, here's the fruit of where all this rhetoric leads, right? And you're right. I mean, the, Mike Pence was one person for sure. There were a couple of people even inside of Trump's administration who testified, like we were telling him that it's not stolen. And I do wonder sometimes like, yeah, how close did we really get, right, to having like a massive crisis on our hand? And now with these indictments coming out, you know, I think it's uh, there's four total. I think three are around what you said, the Democratic um, trying to, to subvert the Democratic Democratic process and then seeing the right wing media response, which is just totally pivoted to full on full court press in defense of Trump. Do, I, what is interesting to me, and I like your thoughts on this, and then we're going to kind of expand out beyond Trump and get to more global things. I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm asking for political commentary, but. I just don't understand like how far that party has moved so quickly. I mean, Mitt Romney debated Obama. You know what I'm saying? Right, like yeah. I, I watched it. I watched it happen. Uh, McCain uh, debated yeah. Obama. I watched those things. I, was, I wasn't that old, but I was old enough. And to see the, the shift in just a short a decade or less from that to Trump to where now Romney is considered a quote unquote rhino. Republican right. in name only, and he's like totally on the outskirts. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has spoken at events like Nick Fuentes' events, who's a self-described Holocaust-denying, Jew-hating, misogynistic, homophobic, white white nationalist. I mean, this is, these are words that Nick has used on his own show. I'm not making those up. Right. You know, when that's happened, and now Marjorie got reelected and is pretty much second in command to Kevin McCarthy in the House, she took over for a day when he was out of town. It is concerning to see like how quickly this happened but i'm wondering if from from your vantage point you're like eh, not as quick as you thought it's kind of been underneath the surface for a long time like what, what are your thoughts on that um i think that i think that the u.s republican radicalization 
has been a longer process. And I think the 60s are where to start. Uh, Barry Goldwater was the nominee in 1964. He was seen as pretty radical at the time. Mm-hmm. He got the nomination. Uh, more moderate candidates were defeated. And he got crushed in the election, right? Yeah. Um, but he had he was kind of a first iteration of, you know, angry white guy, not happy with with liberalizing trends. Um, real. Uh, but but he would he would probably be called a rhino today. Right. Yeah. Um, one way to think about it is the old Republican coalition had had kind of three primary pieces to it. There was the anti-communism Cold War stuff, so yep. strong military, internationalism, U.S. as the leader of the free world type thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it had pro-business kind of Main Street or Wall Street kind of uh, low taxes, low regulation stuff, right? Yeah. So uh, Mitt Romney would fit kind of there. Uh, and it had, after Reagan came along and got married to the Christian right, um, it had... It had the kind of moral values, traditionalism against modern changes. Um, and underneath it all, the modern Republican Party had re- had foot dragging on civil rights for African-Americans. Um, that was part of how it solidified its leadership in the South by foot dragging right. on civil rights. Right. Um, and Trump really only has that last piece. He's not a free market libertarian capitalist. He's not a um, strong defense internationalist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, he's something different. It's like the metastasizing of the negative culture wars reaction to all the modern changes um, in one person without much of an agenda beyond that. You know? Yeah. So right. Right. Resist the decline of white power, resist feminism, resist gay rights, resist right. um, uh, an honest accounting of American history, um, and so on. And Can then, I interrupt you there really quickly? Yeah. So I'm sorry to cut you off, but yeah. that's uh, maybe I'm just, I'm, it's clicking for me for the first time, whatever. But you're right. Like the past however many years, four, eight years, have just been dominated by these culture war talking points. We haven't talked, we, we, we have not as a country in our cultural climate discourse, public discourse, really been talking about affordable health care or livable wages. I mean, I mean, Biden has talked about it in a speech, but like it's not on the tip of, it's not what we're, what we're all thinking about. And it is so frustrating to be so sucked into these culture wars like you talked about uh, that obviously for, for people that they're targeting do create much harm that people need to respond to. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But it's frustrating that we're sucked in in that world when there are other issues that that are affecting people right now that we could be talking about, but instead we're talking about we're talking about critical race theory and quote trying to trans kids. It's like what are we actually talking about as a country? It just feels like yeah. a big smokescreen. And by the way, that same thing um, does happen around the world with yeah. these authoritarian leaders. What they have found is you can mobilize the anxieties and fears and frustrations of a lot of people who don't like more pluralistic, diverse, um, inclusive yeah. social order. And in a sense, what that does, as you said, is, I mean, you can't have a rational conversation about a pub- public policy issue. 
like I told you at the beginning, that's kind of what I was trained to do, help Christians think about things like affordable housing or healthcare or the mental health system or right. climate change or uh, unions or labor rights or all those things, all those things that have to do with incrementally improving the social order for people's well-being, right? Um, but instead, we're fighting over symbolic cultural matters, a lot of it having to do with who is in charge. Right. Who has power. Yeah. And um, one cynical theory is if you can get people mobilized, and I think it's cynical and accurate, if you can get people fired up about critical race theory, they may not notice that you're picking their pockets in terms of what the tax system looks like or how the inheritance laws work or, right. or what minimum wage not being lifted up or whatever, right? Right. But but it is also true that a lot of people, millions of people care most right now about social changes that they find threatening. And the story they are telling is that cultural elites, including in government and academics like me, are systematically attacking them and their values and their communities. And so the purpose of politics is to fight back in every way. Yeah. Whether that's symbolically or or in, in the halls of Congress. Yeah. And skillful demagogues, like some of the people that you study really closely, you know, people yeah. um they know how to whip that up. They could they make they make bank off of whipping that up. They make right? a lot of money. It must be nice, I tell you. <laughs> I'm in the wrong industry. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. But but the the idea that I mean, think of we haven't made much progress on climate. Meanwhile, the earth is heating up, but that would that would involve collective effort to study something closely and make hard decisions together. We're too busy arguing over, um, yeah, which bathroom people are going to use. Right. What? <laughs> right. What? But for some people, that is the issue of the day. Yeah. And I mean, the big story I, that I tell in the book partly includes the idea that traditional conservative folks often in modern liberal societies often feel that they keep losing. They keep losing a way of life mm. that they, or a way, a, a dominant position in society or unquestioned set of values that they consider to be God's will and the totally. will of nature and all of that, right? And so for them, it's a crisis and they're, they're struggling for strategies for responding. And Trump and people like Trump come along in different countries and say, just trust me, I will be your strongest advocate. Whatever right. it takes, I'll make it right again for you. I'll make America or Russia or Poland or Hungary great again. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. One more question. Then I, then I want you to speak to some out of our context scenarios about, about you know, examples of this. Um, let's talk about the Christian part of this really quick. Because yeah. this is, this is, and we, we really could spend two, three more hours unpacking every nuance. So I know we can't do that here. The Christian side of this is fascinating for me as someone who was inside the evangelical machine, now kind of on the outside. And even I've seen a shift in tone from people that maybe I didn't see talking the same way. How do you define the Christian part of, of the arc? And why do you think there's a draw to this authoritarianism and this move away, move, moving away from democracy? Um, that's a great question, Tim. In studying this, um, one thing that's become clear to me is that 
there is a there is a significant wellspring of Christian tradition that can easily be mobilized for authoritarianism and for reactionary uh, yeah. posture towards modern culture. Yeah, authoritarianism um, is easily derived from Scripture. Um, God declares what is right; we obey. God's right. representatives speak for God to declare what is right. The people are supposed to obey. Uh, the Old Testament has various leadership models, and there's a lot of good resources there for democracy, but there's also the biggest chunk is either rule by charismatic religious leaders like Moses right, or uh, a theocratic dynasty, right? Yeah. There's, no, there's no democracy in the Hebrew Bible. Right. In the New Testament, you've got um, Jesus' authoritative, not authoritarian, but authoritative leadership. Right. And then the context is the Roman Empire, which is, uh, you know, an empire, a, a brutal empire. So if people are just trying to go directly from Scripture to today, there's not it's not easy to get democracy there. Right. Fair. Right. And so so for those people who don't think historically, but all they do is they read off of Scripture, you have some some vulnerability there to authoritarian thinking. I, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, this is Doug Wilson's argument a lot is that, listen, like the Bible, here's what it just says plainly, you know, like, hey, like uh, we are to disciple the nations. And of course, we can get into the exegesis and the language and stuff. But his take is like discipling the nations make, means making them Christian. There we go. Justification. We now have a, an obligation to Christianize the world. And it's like, wow, you have to be pretty ahistorical not to remember some people saying the same thing a few hundred years ago and like how that ended up. You know what a I mean? A lot of people getting killed. Yeah, a lot. See, um, Yeah. The Western political story is a story of a gradual, bloody move away from state religious authoritarianism. Think about it. I'm like, just pick a country. Look what happened in France, right? Um, right. Or look what happened in England uh, with Henry VIII and then the Catholic-Protestant wars um, and the persecution of the dissenters. Um, think of the Anabaptists being slaughtered in Europe, right? Um, and then you had the radical Anabaptists who were violent, that little group, and they did their own set of killing. Think of all the people burned at the stake. Um, right. Most scholars would agree, and I, I argue in the book that the kind of democracy that we ended up in the U.S. birthing in the late 18th century, whatever its flaws, and they were many, yeah. was a legacy both of a religious heritage of Jewish and Christian sources and also of lessons learned through the excesses and violence of bloodshed by the state in the name of God. Mm. And so we learned over a couple hundred years and I think the U.S. system developed a beautiful synthesis. We learned that you can respect religion and allow religion uh, a heavily influential role in a culture, yeah. but not have religion wired into the state. Yeah. And that's what we had with the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, but all along, there were people who said, no, you cannot have a stable society or a good society if it's not officially, authoritatively Christian. Yeah, I mean, Doug Wilson, I, I've we've interviewed him before. He says he wants to put Jesus Christ as Lord in the Constitution. Like, like that's what he wants to get done in his lifetime. And it's like, wow, you're just going to go ahead and just say the quiet part out loud. And, I'll, I'll, you know, the argument, uh, so friends, if you're listening, you're thinking, oh, that that's so extreme. A lighter version of that is when you hear, is when you hear people say, hey, there's no such thing as neutrality. 
There's no such thing as neutrality. There's always a side. It's the, it's the state versus the church. There's all this talk in some of these spaces of, you know, the secular worldview is really a religious worldview too. So this is yeah. a war of religions, right? And it's a very, listen, it, as far as, I'm going to say the word, as far as propaganda goes, it's very effective propaganda. It's very well, clever, but it's disingenuous. Some Well, some of these folks actually do believe that um, secularism is the dominant religion of liberal elites yes. that is being stuffed down the throats of everybody who is under the leadership of those institutions that are led by secular liberals. That's right. And so if, and in fact, I read a number of things in, that I, I cited in the book. The basic argument is that we actually don't have a liberal society with freedom of thought and diversity of opinion. We have an illiberal society dominated by elite authoritarians yes and so therefore the only way to defeat it for some of the more radical voices is with an authoritarian society dominated by christian authoritarians yes winner take all and and because so much is at stake if the result of a democratic election is not what you think or not what you want it to be then maybe you don't respect the result of that election or maybe you try to do some things to make sure that you never get an election result that you don't want I, 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 that that's helpful and you're right there there is a take of like yeah we don't live in a free society you're already ruled by the by by, by this elitist class which is ironic is so often they will use some of the people in a their quote-unquote elitist spaces like for example james Lindsay is a good example of this james Lindsay is a he has his doctorate in mathematics he's become like he's an atheist he, he has become a lightning rod for people like Charlie Kirk and Turning Point to use as like the official, this guy gives us some some heft, some weight behind what we're saying, that it's all a big Marxist lie and that, you know, Marxism is everywhere because he's an academic, so he studied this stuff. But Charlie Kirk will also write a book saying that, essentially it's called, the, the book's called The College Scam. It's a book about how going to college is a scam for elites to get rich off of you. But then mm -hmm. he'll also not admit that the loan industry is predatory and leeching off of people to make unfair amounts of money because, you know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. It was your own choice. So he's actually operating three different like spaces that actually are actually are actually in, in odds with, with each other and in competition with each other. But for mm. but for the way that that his system, and I'm using him as an example, the way that his worldview, I guess, quote unquote, works is that, well, whatever serves me at any time is the one I'm going to pull from to make my argument. So like, there's not a lot of consistency. It's more like almost opportunism. Does that make sense? Yeah, but also I think, again, partly for the public personalities, I mean, Trump modeled words are not commitments. Words are things you try out to see if something works. And then if it mm. works, then you use that line, you know? So mm. I, I, think, I think that rhetoric, it's sophism or sophistry, right? You're just trying out different arguments and stuff. But, but the idea... There is a serious idea underneath it, and it's an idea that more progressive people need to think about. Yeah. Um, that there is, let's say there's 20% or 25%, maybe even 30% of Americans who believe that they are under assault by cultural authorities like at the major universities and in the administrative aspects of government. 
and and the liberal elites in business that thus woke capitalism right you know yeah um the diversity officers and all of that and in that they the rules are bent so that people who will go along with them win and people who won't lose right um and we need really tough SOBs in every sector who will push back against them. Thus, that's Ron DeSantis's persona, right? Totally. Um, totally. And, and, but, you know, you look at what, what's happened in a place like um, Russia or Hungary, for example, the leaders have leveraged people's and sometimes the church's worries over the incursions of liberal ideas. Yeah. To say, I am the defender of tradition. Mm. I'm the defender of our traditional way of life and of the people who have been in charge. I'm the defender of the church. I'm the defender of God. I'm the defender of the Bible. I'm the defender of morality. I'm the defender of the historic religious majority. Yeah. Um, That matters far more than some picky little rules about how you count ballots. Yeah. Okay, so let's zoom out. I mean, a lot of us are, we're, we're in America, most of my audience is. We know what's going on here. And even if, even if you're not in America, I'm sure you know what's going on here. Give us, in the book, what were some of the maybe more surprising or maybe more, hey, this, this other situation that's not in the U.S. maybe is a warning to like where we're heading or something like that that maybe stood out to you? Um, I think the story of Viktor Orban in Hungary is very interesting. Go for it. Tell us. Um, he, uh, his bio is interesting. You know, he was kind of an anti-communist politician. He, you know, comes out on the other side of the collapse of communism. Um, he's he's seen as a kind of a of a you know modern liberal Democrat for a while. He takes he ends up becoming the head of a party and then ends up being elected and then he loses an election. And he says, he's quoted as saying, I, I will make sure that I never, if I get in office again, I'll never lose another election. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been um, in charge in Hungary now for, I think it's at least a decade. Um, and he is immensely skillful at manipulating structures of power to consolidate control. Um, this is something that you can't do by a tweet. Right. You can't do by just blathering angrily at this elite and that elite. It's like figuring out what officials do we need to replace? Um, What laws do we need to change or reinterpret? What structures of power do we need to manipulate? Um, uh, Like I, I reported in the book about this thing called voter tourism in Hungary, where Orban shipped people into specific districts to get them to vote there because he had some vulnerability in those districts and also to um, uh, to to ratchet up his his parliamentary majority in in Hungary. Wow. Um, So there's like rhetoric. Oh, those awful liberals. We need uh, uh, you make you make speeches. Orban, the surprising thing is if you know how power works, if you know where the pressure points are and you can fiddle with those um, successfully and neutralize opposition, then maybe you can subvert democracy without having to have a coup. 
You don't have to rush on the capital. That's a sign already in a sense of weakness. Right. What if instead you, uh, for example, you disable the inspector general role so that there's never any independent oversight of what happens in a government agency? Right. Or if you, um, uh, if you manipulate the judiciary so that uh, you're the one who always ends up appointing all the judges. Right. Um, I mean, Trump ran Trump ran into limits in 2021 uh, because he didn't have he had not disabled all of the means of resisting what he wanted to do. There were still courts who could tell him no to 61 right. challenges. Right. Right. Um, there was still a Supreme Court that would not accept right. uh, that, that. I mean, a Supreme Court he had appointed the majority of. Uh, or a lot of them that would not accept his um, his his actions. Right. Imagine somebody who has figured out how to hold on to power for over a decade and has systematically dismantled all of those. Right. That is democratic self suicide, um, which is one reason why demo- why most scholars would say Hungary is not a democratic state anymore. It has the appearance of democracy, but Orban has neutered real democracy. So put in another way, so it might appear like it's democratic, but actually the whole thing has been rigged already to look a certain way, but it's it's all set. Like he has the most control. There's It's gutted from the inside out. Gutted from the inside out. That's right. So essentially he got power and then and then dismantled it so that that's way he could right. stay in yeah. power. That, that's right. And he's also, the fact that he's being invited to CPAC, oh. um, that... Tucker Carlson, when he yes. ruled Fox, went over there and spent a week with him. Yes. That Rod Dreher is attracted to him. Right. Um, and I, may still be in Hungary, uh, last I heard. Um, wow. Um, Dreher is an interesting example because at one point he was calling for withdrawal from decadent American society. And I was able to find quotes from him in the book where he said, no, nah, no, nah, okay, that's not the strategy. What we need is we need our own Orban. Right. And he, I don't think he thought that Trump ended up having the discipline to be that person. Mm. I think a lot of them thought that DeSantis was going to be that person. Mm. Our own Orban. He wrote the book Live Not By Lies, right? Dreyer, I believe that's right, yeah. I listened to that whole book. I did. I, I, I picked it up, listened to it. I was like, huh. Some of these stories are definitely concerning, for sure. You know, it's very much a, a lot of stories being pulled about, you know, Christian persecution in, in, I guess, communist countries. I can't validate if they're true or not, but like, if, if they are, a lot of them work. In, of course, like, this is not good. Then he kind of ran through the Christian circuit. Uh, Lisa Childers had him on. I think Ali Stuckey had him on. So it is interesting to see how, whether they know it or not, that they're playing with folks who are very close to this world of, like, promoting people who use the democratic process to gain power and then dismantle the democratic process, democratic process to maintain their power. And I think that's, what's so concerning. Um, A lot of people feel like if Trump somehow becomes president again, he will surround himself now with people who know how to do that. That's I think, yeah, I mean, I've talked to people, ones that I can't say on the air privately, who are very much conservative, not Christian nationalists, not this arc authoritarian reactionary Christian thing, but just conservative, like think Mitt Romney almost. And they've right. told me like, yeah, Trump cannot get back in power. Like it, it can't happen. It, it It is not, it cannot be a thing. And I'm like, thank you. Like one person even said, 
I would like to have a democracy left that we can still argue in when all is said and done. I go, I can agree to that. Like we can shake hands, you know? So I think what's interesting is that it does seem like this perhaps more, I hate to use the term, but more like moderate, more conservative even now approach. Some people are even starting to wake up and they maybe always did. Maybe they were like these never Trumpers who were conservative, but I can't vote for Trump. But I think even they are very alarmed at like how the support of Trump has not slowed down. I mean, last time I saw uh, Ron DeSantis is behind Trump at a margin that no candidate has ever come back from and gotten the nomination. Like it, it, all signs, unless Trump gets imprisoned or as part of some imaginary plea deal that we don't know is going to happen yet, is told you can't run for office. Trump is going to become the presidential nominee from the Republican Party. And it's that worked. is just mind blowing. It looks like it. Um, uh, and, you know, by the way, this process that we're going to watch unfold over the next 15 months is going to test us again in another round, because if if people believe I don't think it'll ever be a majority now of Americans, but if enough people believe every single indictment is further evidence of the system being rigged, right? Every single indictment is the liberal elites coming at our guy. Um, right. None of, none of that evidence matters. It's just, it's all, it's all plot, you know? Right. Uh, by the way, I think it's interesting that the language of Marxism is still out there. This is, it's going strong. I mean, like, this is the anti-communist crusade rhetoric from 1953. It hasn't ever really gone away. Not at all. You know, you can, you can always pull out the Marxist card, you know. C- cultural Marxism, Marxism. I mean, it is thrown around like a beach ball at a Nickelback concert. It's just right. like, it's just everywhere, you know. Right. So um, the other, one of the things to just to follow up on what I was saying about Hungary, um, there are networks of of authoritarian kind of Christians who talk to each other um, that and I think that part of part of the attraction of Putin before he invaded Ukraine yeah was that he was seen as kind of the forerunner of strongman traditionalist Christian fighting back against the godless yeah you know, liberals who support homosexuality right um um the ukraine invasion you know cut his western support dramatically though never seemed to limit trump's support right yeah but um so but already by then orban i think had become more the flavor of the month um still the christian rhetoric the traditional values rhetoric the not very veiled racist stuff um anti-Semitism, yep. et cetera, um, but defending traditional Hungarian Christian values. Bolsonaro in Brazil, I have a chapter on yes. on Brazil. He did the same thing there. He held, got power that way, held power that way, and very nearly got reelected that way. Yep. Um, so the formula works. I also have two chapters on uh, what happened in France after the French Revolution and what happened in Germany in the 19th and early 20th centuries longer time horizon, some pretty similar dynamics. Hmm. We actually interviewed, I'm looking for his podcast now so I can tell people what it is. I don't see it in front of me. Oh, here it is. The Evangelical Complicity in the Brazilian Insurrection with Dr. Um, Jao Chavez. I said yeah, correct. I quote yeah. him. He's yeah. one of the authorities on um, on Brazil. Um, I quote him in the book. Yeah. That was just a mind-blowing interview. It was amazing to have him on. 
And I, I did that like two days after their own introduction happened. Like, yo, yeah. help, help me understand what, you know, and, and I think one of the questions I have for you, and I, I asked him this too, is like, do you feel like, uh, well, actually, I have two more questions for you. The, the first one we can start here is, do you feel like we are exporting a playbook to other countries and leaders who might want to pull from this? Because I'll be honest, seeing what happened in Brazil, I was like, this rings a bell. Like this looks all too familiar in every way, shape and form, including people praying, people with Bibles. Like it was almost like out of a movie. So what are your thoughts? Like, Are, are we exporting this? Is it a symb- symbiotic relationship? You know, um, I do know that there um, were relationships, specific people like Steve Bannon, a name we haven't yes. heard much recently, right? Yep. Who was in conversation with Bolsonaro. I, we know that one of Bolsonaro's sons was uh, on the scene on January 5th um, and, uh, you know, in, in the kind of fevered run up to January 6th, he was in D.C. Yes. Hanging out with with some of the folks that were involved. Um, so are we exporting it or is it more like um, an international uh, alliance of like-minded people who share similar take on the world and are sharing strategies. I think it's more like that. I need to also say just to reinforce how intertwined this is. Um, Bolsonaro also spoke at Turning Points event this year, in in early early this year, twenty twenty three. He was the keynote speaker um, um, at, at an event that was hosted, I believe. Um, at Trump's uh, resort. If not, then there's two different speaking events. But yeah, yeah, in, in Miami, yep, uh, for young conservatives. So again, like this happened in ge- this year, 2023. So in January, so, February. So we're not just making this stuff up, right? You know, right, I mean, right. Um, and, but I hope that one of the things that people take away from the book is that I'm listening. I'm trying to listen and not just rant right. at, like, and I quote some pretty smart people, Notre Dame professors and Harvard professors and people who are attracted in one way or another to this agenda. Um, uh, a Polish uh, legislator who I, I give some attention to the situation in Poland, too. Um, the, the idea of revolution, counter-revolution, yeah. of social changes evoking a fierce reaction. This is one of the oldest dynamics in politics. Christians are all intertwined in part because a certain rendering of what Christianity is, this goes back to an earlier question of yours, if Christianity is understood and if Christian ethics is understood to consist of, we are against them. We are against that. We don't want that. A negative, narrow, legalist, you know, whatever, anti-pluralist agenda then Christianity is always going to be in the middle of authoritarian reactionary politics yeah. in any country that has a lot of Christians in it. So I I, pull up, I pulled up Charlie's tweet about this. I want you all to hear how he phrased this conversation of him um, having um, Bolsonaro speak at their event in Miami, February 3rd, 2023. The tweet reads this, Brazil has become a key battleground in the global clash between the power of the people and the tyranny of a corrupt globalist machine. TPUSA is honored 
to host President Bolsonaro in Miami this Friday for his first public event following the recent Brazilian elections. So that's the framing, right? Is that like yeah. you said earlier, there's this there's this big machine of elites and it's global and it's 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 out there somewhere coming for you and people like President Bolsonaro are just they're taking the power back for the people. When yeah. the reality is that they're causing insurrections in their own states, trying to overthrow legitimate elections. Yeah, it's interesting that he called him President Bolsonaro, though he's not. He wasn't president at the time, just like President Trump is called President Trump, though he's not president now. Yes. The, the, it's partly the delegit. It's a subtle delegitimizing of the people who hold the office now. Yeah. These are, I mean, these are part of the norms. I talk about this in the book. Norms matter, not just laws. Like the norm, you'll hear American presidents used to say, you know, we only have one president at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And we really want to respect the office. Right. And, you know, politics stops at the water's edge. We don't we don't export our, our partisan stuff. When we go overseas, the president represents all Americans. Remember that? What universe was that, Tim? Because I don't right. recognize that now. Right. That was before talk radio. <laughs> right. Um, and and like. It's the erosion of such norms, yeah, and not just the crossing of legal boundaries that is that that makes what the political scientists call democratic backsliding. Good religious term there, democratic backsliding. Yeah, democratic. Yeah. How about democratic apostasy? Right. There right, you go. Right now we're talking. Um, we're talking about the loss of a. You might say the erosion of a faith. Yeah. Yeah. One of my last questions for you, and I, again, yeah. David, thanks for taking time. And friends, the book is Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. When does the book actually come out? Uh, the official release date is October 3rd. It looks like it might be out ahead of that a little bit. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, so when this comes out, the, the book should be out by then. Um, my last question is, what's the role of media in this? You know, one thing that I've been very focused on is tracking this rise of this, I call it a right-wing media empire, starting more in public radio, talk radio with like the Rush Limbaugh. So that was version one. Version two is on the internet now. It's the Daily Wire. It's the Blaze. It's PragerU. In fact, just to give you some data on this part, I've actually researched this for a piece we're working on. The Daily Wire which is like, that's Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, Matt Walsh. Turning Point USA, that's Charlie Kirk and his network of people. Uh, the Blaze, that's Glenn Beck's thing, um, which now has like Ali Stuckey, a bunch of other podcasts underneath of it. And they're also a new site. Um, and PragerU, those are just four names. Um, between them, do close to $200 million in revenue, with The Daily Wire doing $150 million of, the, of that a year. Now, the Daily Wire claims to be putting out 250 pieces of content a, a day, a day. That's not a year, a day. And wow. that's not including everything else. And also, those institutions, not their personalities, just their institutional brand accounts, have over 10 million combined followers on all of their channels easily. So they really have built this network, this big network, this well-funded network of people and media personalities, people with an attitude who people can who look to these, you know, almost uh, demagogues, as you say, who really have become like the Trump apologist, right? The, the not just conservative, because remember, Mitt Romney's too, he's too rhino now, but like the Trumpism, they become the apologist for everything that entails the authoritarianism, the patriarchy, the um the homophobia the um you know uh, the regression on civil rights and like all that kind of stuff 
what global leagues, we all know the effects of it here. Does media like that play a role in other places that have similar problems like this? Yes. And um, because, I mean, now Twitter has been damaged a lot by Elon. And so it isn't yeah. quite what it was. Right. But, but when Twitter was the go-to place for everybody. Yeah. Um, a especially effective meme or tweet or, or a strategy in one place could easily leap to another place. Mm. Um, and so, but there is, uh, there is media personalities. Um, oh, by the way, one thing that has happened in some of these authoritarian countries uh, is public radio and television being taken over by the regime mm. so that it, what's supposed to be the most independent authoritative source ends up being just another propaganda mouthpiece. Yeah. Right. right. So if it happens there and it's not just somebody's talk radio station somewhere, but it's like NPR. Right. BBC, right. Then, then, you know, you, you don't, you don't need the, you don't need the others cause you got the main, uh, the main media outlets. Yeah. But yeah, media is huge here. Um, and, it's it's all forms of media. It's old school radio on the AM dial, right? Yeah. All the way to right. everything else that's that's out there, right? Wow. You drive through the South right now, and you 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 have your AM on, and you're listening to what's out, what's up. You don't want to do that for very long, right? Listen, just, I I grew up on it. I, I live in New Jersey, not even the South. That's Northeast, and my diet was you know Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Michael uh, Smirconis, his local station person, Michael Savage, um, you name it. I Glenn Beck. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. I grew up on a very steady diet of that. Um, and, you know, I really see them as the people who paved the way for a more radical version of these Charlie Kirks, people who are under 30 or 30, you know, like Charlie Kirk, I think just turned 30. So he's young and he's only taken the rhetoric a st many more steps beyond even what, what Rush Limbaugh might have said, you know, as far as like the level of dishonesty that we see, honestly, frankly, from these organizations. So, yeah, I, I, I was just kind of curious about that because media is such an important piece of our society. It helps us be informed what happens when that's gutted, right? What happens when this alternative media, these alternative facts start popping up? I think right. that was a huge part, even in what formed January 6th. You know, one thing I would say about that, that number, 10 million, right? Okay. We have a country of 360 million people or something now, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. um, so 10 million, let's say you even multiply that by five of people who are sympathetic. Uh, maybe it's 50 million. Um, it's not a majority. Right. It's a very frustrated minority. Yeah. And it's a minority that gets more frustrated every day the more, the more it feeds on this rhetoric. Yeah. Um, it's not enough to win elections fair and square, except in really, really conservative districts. Right. That's one reason why the Republicans keep losing at the presidential level, at the popular vote level, because they do not have a majority of the people. Right. Um, but right. it's enough to have a really loud, radicalized minority. Um, it's enough to take the heart and soul out of the Republican Party at this point. And it's enough to spawn people a small, small percentage of whom are going to get out their guns. Yeah. No, I, 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 I said when January 6th happened, I hope that I'm wrong, but I think this is a test run for more violence, not the opposite. And the way that Trump, even in this, in this moment, while we're having this conversation in real time, the way he's been talking, the way people like even Charlie, I mean, there's quotes of him. They're the invader. We're the true Americans. You know, they're taking this from us. 
that rhetoric leads somewhere. There's already like the redoubt movement in the in the Pacific Northwest, you know, people who really are ready to try and secede from the union, people who have already started living that way. There have been attempts and they are arming themselves and they are ready for a civil war to happen. I think it's a bad idea on their part. I don't think you're ever going to be able to overthrow the world's biggest military power. But if someone can control the world's biggest military power, that's what we need to be concerned about ultimately. Right. Yeah. So I would just call, I mean, the book includes chapters offering some of the great resources of the Christian faith, how, how, for example, Christians ended up embracing democratic thinking in their churches and then in politics, yeah. and how the concept of a covenant that includes all the people of a society is helpful, right. and how the African-American resistance tradition in politics is a resource for, for, for democracy. So the book is not all critique. It's also hey, let's remember why it is that so many Christians supported, like, the Constitution of the United States, right. the separation of church and state, um, the establishment of a, of a democracy. Yeah. And let's also acknowledge the flaws of that democracy, having been racialized and so on from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, but we do have resources. There are reasons why Christians have been Democrats, little d. Yeah. And I think it's time for Christians to remember what those are and to stand up for non-authoritarian democratic government um and now we're about to enter a new political season in which we will once again contest the very terms of whether and how we live together as, as a people yeah i agree well friends the book is defending democracy from its christian enemies david are you online are you on twitter still like do you have any social i am media i'm presence? still there i'm on uh instagram facebook and twitter um DP Gushy. Just look under DP Gushy. It's usually where I can be found. And I, I also it. have my website uh, that is a good spot, davidpgushy.com. Sweet. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I love the book. I'm going to see you in September, which might be at this point in the past. Uh, but it was, uh, we had a great time, everyone, just so you know. Uh, but David, <laughs> uh, thanks for coming out. Thanks for hanging out with me and talking about the book. I wish you, of course, the best success with it. I'm, I'm halfway through. I'm loving it. And it will certainly be useful for me as I navigate my own content creation uh, as we talk about this kind of stuff. So thanks for your time. Glad to hear that. Thanks, Tim. We'll talk again soon. Definitely. <laughs>